Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, June 3rd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we're going to talk about how the trade war is impacting the financial sector. We're going to dig into a couple of listener questions that came across the Twitter feed. As always, we'll have one to watch for you. But we begin this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. As you may remember, we've recently brought four new analysts onto our investing team here at The Motley Fool, and we wanted to take the opportunity here on Industry Focus and Between Two Fools to introduce you to them. In our fourth and final installment of our analyst interviews, I had the good fortune of speaking with Ari Hughes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, Ari, first things first here. Uh, Tell our members, tell our listeners out there, who are you and how did you get here to The Motley Fool? Uh, Sure. Uh, Thank you for having me, by the way. Um, So, I'm originally from Northern Virginia. I grew up not too far out of the headquarters, from the headquarters of the Motley Fool in uh, Northern Virginia, Fairfax area. And I've always just kind of had a passion and interest in business. Um, In high school, I used to do like a lot of marketing competitions and things like that, where you'd come up with proposals. And uh, I, th- I really thought for the first portion uh, of my life, I was going to be like a marketing executive <laughs> or like a, a brand manager somewhere. Well, we do have a marketing <laughs> business here if it's interesting to you. Yeah. And then, um, I, but I always like finance was my first love. Um, I always was interested in being like a stockbroker. And then what happened was uh, I was entering college as the recession hit. And I said, Ouch. okay, yeah, I'm going to do marketing, but I want something a little bit more uh, kind of technical or like I think maybe a little, a little bit certain in this economy. So I like thought, okay, maybe I'll do finance. So double majored in uh, finance and marketing and then started off as a financial analyst for a local government contractor. And uh, while I was in college, I just got really got interested in the markets and I took, you know, the little income I had from my part-time job <laughs> and I would start looking at uh, shares and things I, you know, like to own and research and that just kind of bloomed and then it grew and grew. And last year I finally said, you know, I, I really want to be an equity research analyst that, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm gonna, <laughs> I made that my goal. And then uh, I put together a report, started going around, uh, interviewing, and then, I discovered The Motley Fool, and uh, the rest is kind of history. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I mean, as, as a part of your interview and coming here, um, you know, one of the things that struck us was your passion for investing. I mean, that Apple stock pitch that you brought to us, speaking with you, it was very clear that you were doing something you really enjoyed doing. And that was ultimately one thing that made us feel really good about, about having you come here and join us. Because really, I mean, investing is is all about that passion and wanting to dig into it every day. Uh, now, speaking of investing, we like to talk about value investing and growth investing and dividend investing and all that stuff. Um, identifying what kind of investor you are, I think, is always a bit of an interesting exercise. When I started here almost 10 years ago, I wasn't even really sure what kind of investor I, I was. Um, what kind of investor are you? Do you know? Or are you still in that process of discovering that? Or do you have a strong feeling there? Yeah, so I think I'd identify myself as probably a combination of value and GARP. Um, essentially, I'm in, interested in uh, businesses that generate like some type of free cash flow. Yeah, um, that's really important to me because you know I, I think about business from a practical standpoint. Like if I owned a private business, I want something that generates cash. You know, the, um, you have like a lot of high growth companies that maybe aren't cash flow positive. Um, so those are just kind of the businesses I prefer. 
Yeah, GARP, I, 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 I can relate to that. I think, uh, and for the listeners who aren't familiar with that, that's growth at a reasonable price. I mean, it's, I, I like that one. I've always kind of considered myself a motley investor. I mean, I'll go, I'll go anywhere where I feel like the opportunity is, but I think I probably fit mostly into that GARP category. Um, what, since you've been here and it's not been all that long and you're still going through our investor development program, but what's something you've learned here in your time here so far? What's something you've learned in regard to investing that surprised you or something that you weren't actually, you know, expecting? Sure. So, um, one of the things I really valued out of the analyst development program that wasn't a part of my process before was this whole idea of looking at proxy statements to see how uh, management is incentivized. So, I used to read kind of the 10K, which is a the document that describes the business in general and gives you the financials. But it's really important to understand that as management incentivized to make the business more profitable for it to generate free cash flow. So is your CEO going to get bonuses or incentives based on making the business uh, more efficient or more profitable? So those are really um, important things to me now that kind of translate into, I think, higher stock prices, uh, especially for most businesses that I really valuable that just I really value it now, but wasn't a part of my process uh, before coming here. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You can see in some of those proxies where if incentive is based on earnings per share, you and I know they can manipulate that earnings number Correct. in a number of different ways. Yeah. But if it's based on something like operating income, I mean that's a number, right? That you can't really fudge that so much. Exactly. So yeah, that's a great point there. Um, what is the best piece of investing advice you've ever gotten in all of your years up to this point? Anything stand out? Yeah, uh, sure. I think the best piece of advice kind of falls in line with uh, I think a lot of the the Buffett mantras, where you know the idea of would you buy the entire business? Oh yeah. Um, you know, if I'm looking at any company, I kind of start with that question. Uh, I don't think about it as you know just a stock. Uh, is this a business I would be willing to own? You know, if the market shut down for ten years. Yep. Um, you know, things like that is kind of where I start. And I think that also dictates your like risk tolerance. Sure. Um, you know, so, you know, it also determines, you know, how, how comfortable are you with this type of business? So that's where I start is what I own this business in real life or, you know, if in a private setting, um, is kind of the starting question for me. I think yeah, it's really important. We talk to a lot of investors all the time, members and listeners and prospects and people who are asking questions. That that whole idea of business-focused investing, that's what that is. View yourself as an owner. Would you want to own that business? That'll that'll help you make that decision, I think, pretty sure. quickly. Because some of them you would be happy to own. Some of them you're like, I don't, I don't yeah. want to own that thing. <laughs> I think also the other thing is, too, is you really have to, do you understand the business as yeah, well? Yeah, that's a good I think point. that's going to be another thing that comes out of that like if can you have a conversation about how it makes money you know what what things in the environment affect that um as well that's one of those questions you can ask sometimes you'd be like how does this company make money it seems like such an obvious one but in some cases it's not such an obvious answer right. um, but that is really a great starting point to figure out exactly what that business is and if it's even something you understand or want to get mixed up in that's good um Okay, so going away from investing for a second, talking about Ari the person, um, what's something that has happened to you in your life? Something interesting, something unique, something you feel like our listeners uh, should know about you? 
Sure. So um, I'm an avid snowboarder. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoy snowboarding a lot. I haven't done it as much recently, but once I was in uh, Vermont and I got caught in a snowstorm <laughs> while I was snowboarding, I had to wait, like just wait it out until I could get back to the lodge. It was pretty, it was a scary experience. Like, How the, long did that take? <laughs> uh, maybe like 30 minutes. <laughs> the wind was blowing and like Man. I had to like go behind a shed and just kind of wait it out <laughs> until uh, I could make it back down to the lodge. But uh, <laughs> that was pretty scary. That- yeah, I can imagine. Um, now, I heard a rumor that you're a pretty good ping pong player too. Is that right? <laughs> did you lay? Did you lay the hammer down on Buck Hartzell? True or false? So this I don't is know. Be recording. It's going out there. <laughs> so t- to Buck, Buck has a ping pong table in his house. I know. Um, and you know, we were talking before the match. And he's like, "Oh, I have to find my paddle." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh gosh, this guy has his own equipment." <laughs> so, so that made me really worried. But I think I think it was his partner that wasn't as good. So oh, I think okay. if he had a partner that matched his skill set, I think he would have won. Uh, in all fairness, so if we make it through the next round, then I could probably start to say we're a good team. <laughs> but but I think his partner held him back more so than my skills of being a ping pong player. Well, I don't play a lot of ping pong. I play more tennis and golf. But I tell you, my first time ever coming here, the the day I came here for my interview. I came in here, the place was like a ghost town, and I came to find that the reason why was because it was the the office ping pong tournament, and oh. everybody was over in the game room playing ping pong, and I thought, oh my God, this is, I got to get a job here. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. it all worked out. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Well, normally, we like to wrap these interviews up with, giving, uh, with getting a book recommendation for our interviews, and in this case, because you are who you are and you do what you do, I thought it'd be great if you could give our listeners an idea of a stock that you really like today and why. So tell the listeners out there, what's one stock on your radar today and why do you like it? Sure. Um, So the stock on my radar I'm really interested in is a company called Intuit, uh, ticker symbol I-N-T-U. Intuit is the creator of TurboTax, and I think this is a great business, but just because of the the need to do taxes every year. Yep. So it makes for a great reoccurring revenue uh, for the business itself. And they're the leader in the do-it-yourself market for tax preparation. Um, the software is easy to use. It guides you through the process. Uh, it's very sticky. So you have users coming back to it every year. Um, and the culture, they're always adding things to the product uh, it's really disruptive, and they're always bringing new, you know, kind of additions to their products. They also own uh, QuickBooks, which is the leading um, small business software for accounting. Um, it has 80% of the market share. Um, and they've also kind of updated these products for the gig economy, um, and that's people that drive Uber, oh, Lyft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's been a big need there to understand the kind of accounting in that contractor realm there. Um, the software lets you send invoices, um, which is really advantageous for you know small business owners and things of that nature. Um, so it's just one I like a lot. Uh, the only thing I'm a little uncomfortable with is the valuation at these levels, yeah. but it's a very, uh, I think, attractive company that'll be around for years to come. Yeah, I think uh, valuations are a little scary all the way around here, so it's <laughs> sure. got to be a little bit picky these days. But into it, I like it. I've used TurboTax myself, and you know what they say, death and taxes, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Ari, thanks so much for taking the time to stop by today. I know our listeners have got a, gr- a great thrill out of meeting you, and um, I'm sure we'll be seeing more of you in the near future. All right. Thank you, Jason. And joining me now via Skype is Certified Financial Planner. Matt Frankel. Matt, it sounds like you guys 
maybe had a little bit of a break from the heat there in South Carolina, but it's been kind of warm lately. We did. It's only about 92 here today. And <laughs> last week it was about 101. So. Sheesh. Yeah, we, we were a little bit luckier uh, up this way. It's, it's I think, a high of like 72 today. So, geez, man, I guess, uh, you know, that old saying, sucks to be you. I mean, I, I just, you know, glad we're a little <laughs> bit further north. But I'm not going to sit here and talk about the weather anymore. Let's start really giving our listeners what they want. And that is talk about financials and stocks and making money. Uh, we wanted to really dig into this first uh, on on the show today because it's it's been something that's brought uh, it's been brought more to the forefront here lately as the headlines uh, continue to bat it around. It's this trade war and it's it's the trade war and how this is impacting not only the headlines on a day to day basis but really how it has played out over the financial sector here uh, for for the better part of the year. Um, and you were talking about this before we started taping, and really, it, it plays out sort of in, in two different ways here. Uh, tell the listeners what you were telling me. Yeah, so um, yeah, the trade war's been going on for about a year now. When you think to when Trump first started, you know, threatening all the tariffs on China, but it's really, I'd say, it'd be fair that to say it's really just heated up in the past month or so. Since the uh, China tariffs popped up to 25%, um, then the, the recent ones with the Mexico tariff threat. Um, so over the past month, banks have actually underperformed the market, which hasn't done that well itself, by about two percentage points, which is significant. Banks are down about you know seven or eight percent this this month alone, or in May. So there are two things that investors need to know. One is that banks are very interest rate sensitive. Um, We've talked on the show before about how as interest rates rise, particularly long-term interest rates, banks make more money because they profit from the spread between what they're paying for deposits and what they're getting for loans. Say when you go to buy a car, a bank loans you money. Now they're charging you, you know, say 4% and are paying a depositor you know, half a percent. That difference is their profit. So when rates go up, they make more money. Conversely, when rates go down, they can make less money. And that's kind of what we've seen play out recently. Uh, in the past month alone, the 10-year Treasury has dropped from uh, 2.54% to 2.11% yield. So there's a lot of fears that these falling rates will cut into bank profits, just kind of how you know, a year ago we were talking about how rising rates were causing investors to be optimistic. Sure. So. Well, I mean, I think you and I were talking a lot about that because I mean, it, it started. You know, a lot of these banks started really looking uh, like they were they were trading as very attractive valuations given that potential tailwind. It sounds like that tailwind maybe is going to be on hold for now. Right. I, everyone, uh, you know, thought the Fed would raise rates a few more times, myself included. That was one of my bold predictions that I. Could pretty much say at this point I got wrong. <laughs> well, it's nothing like getting out there and just you know embracing the mistakes, Matt. Learning from them, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, who who could who could have predicted tariffs on Mexico? Wouldn't I mean? I don't know who many too many people who thought that was coming. Yeah, it, it but, it's a really weird time. It does it does feel like um, you know if you look look at it. President Trump's history before he ever became president. I mean, he's he's always been very fond of of deal making, and so I, you know, I can't help but wonder if maybe this isn't just 
a, a bunch of that uh, going on. I mean, there's no question that uh, tariffs, by their very definition, <laughs> raise the cost of doing business for virtually everyone. Um, I mean, I think anybody can see that. Uh, so, so hopefully, this is just some temporary bluster that that uh, eventually blows over. Right. That kind of that your point kind of brings me to my second point, which is that banks kind of thrive on having a strong economy or consumer confidence in particular. Yeah. Um, I mean, a bank could have all the profit margin in the world, but if consumers aren't taking out loans to buy things, it doesn't really matter. So tariffs not only make the cost of goods higher for American consumers, that leaves less disposable income in people's pockets, more uncertainty, which makes people less willing to go out, buy homes, buy cars, take out personal loans, use their credit cards, things like that, that banks depend on for their their profits. So we might actually see some you know, kind of assets fall on banks' balance sheets as people take out fewer loans. And if, especially if all this continues and uh, the China tariffs go to the rest of the Chinese goods, I think it's another $300 billion or so, and the Mexico tariffs kick in, you might see a, lot, a, a big lack of consumer confidence, which could be really bad for banks. Sure. And I mean, again, I think this goes back to the advantages of being able to take that longer term perspective. It's it's not it's not like we're sticking our heads in the sand and just saying, oh, well, these problems don't exist. Blah, 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 blah. You know, if <laughs> if I if I can, you know, I, I can't see see you, then you can't see me. But um, I mean, it is it is one of those situations where we may see some very attractive valuations for some of these really well-run banks that if you can take that three to five year outlook and say, you know what, this is money that I can part with for a little while. Um, I mean, it does look like there are going to be some opportunities that come from this. Oh, absolutely. These are the the times when it's good. It's it's bargain hunting time. And um, my, my one to watch today is going to have something to do with that, just kind of a little preview. Uh-huh. But one big takeaway is that Kind of few of few banks have a lot of direct exposure to China or Mexico or any of these affected countries. Yeah, um, the the majority of companies that have a lot of Chinese exposure are tech companies. The the majority of companies that have a lot of exposure to Mexico are you know the auto industry, energy. You know, financials have very little direct exposure. I mean, they have some, but not a needle moving amount. Right. But it's all this indirect kind of results of the trade war that are really going to hit the banking sector. But like you said, this is a great time to go shopping. Well, maybe we will devote a show here in the next month or so to really dig into some of our favorite ideas uh, you know, that, that may come from all of this. Maybe we'll put. That I like on that the, idea. Yeah, let's get that on the. Uh, we'll get that on the agenda. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's take a turn over here to Twitter. We had a couple of questions that came in uh, recently that, that you and I thought were just really perfectly suited for this show. Uh, first up, we have Adil. I believe I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Adil, um, and Adil asks, "I wonder if you could do an episode on things to take note and how to run through a 10Q or a 10K." To get the most out of it, curious to hear how you guys do your thing, and I'm sure it's a topic many other listeners would appreciate. Uh, and Adil, I think that's a, a very good question. I mean, one of the things that we uh, really stand for here at the Motley Fool is being able to help empower the individual investor to go do their own thing. And, and I mean, you can find all of that information out there if you just take a little time to do it, and if you understand uh, what you're looking for, and you can put together a little bit of a framework, you can kind of become your own uh, analyst in many cases. Uh, so, Matt, why don't we start with you? Uh, what what are what are a couple of the things when you're starting to look through a company's ten 
10Q or a 10K, uh, what, what are some of the things that you do to get the most out of it? Sure. Well, I'll run through my top five. But first, I just kind of want to make one distinction that a uh, common misconception among investors is that the annual report and the 10K are the same thing, and they're not. Right. That the is annual, true. Right. The annual report is the you know the chairman's letter. The it's about you know five or six pages long usually. Just kind of gives the state of the business. You see some nice pretty graphs and stuff like that. The, <laughs> the 10K is the hundred plus pages of black and white that follows it. That's the exciting stuff. That's the sexy reading. <laughs> that, <laughs> For that's what separates like, us. <laughs> like the casual investor from like the educated investor. Yeah, I'd say. yeah, um, yeah. And so. Step one, I would say, read the annual report before you dive into the 10K because it's much more reader friendly. There you go, and just kind of gives you, I'd say, you know, 80 to 90 percent of what you need to know is in the annual report. You don't even really need the 10K for most of it. But having said that, I'll give you my top five. Um, okay, there's a bunch of different sections in the 10K. Um, just looking at it, just to give you an idea, uh, Square's 10K is 138 pages. Um, so. It's not practical to read a 10K for every company you're interested in. So just to kind of narrow it down, uh, the business description is usually about 10 pages long, but it's it's item one in a 10K. It's very worthwhile to read, sure. followed by the risk factors, which is the other part of item one. Um, so a business and its risk factors are two big, big things that every investor should read before buying a stock. Um, the section on legal proceedings is very telling, especially in the financial sector, because mm-hmm. there are... I mean, I don't know any any bank that doesn't have some type of legal exposure. Of course, um, uh, the management discussion of the operations is another big one. Is my other big one to look at, and one that's not on most people's list, but I like to look at is executive compensation. Oh, yeah. I like to yeah. know that. Yeah, I like to know a company's directors have, you know, the, the same interest as I do. That if if I make money, they'll make money. It just kind of aligning our interests. Um, I I was looking through one company where the the CEO only gets his full full compensation package if the stock roughly doubled from current levels within a few years. Oh wow! So that's a right, and it, this was in the hundreds of millions that we're talking about. So this is a big motivation in, in a lot of cases, especially just and this is kind of an outside the box thing to look at because this is not this is kind of buried toward the back of it and is not usually in people's top few things to look at in a 10k. But I I always make a point to read that before I invest. Well, I mean that yeah, that's that's all very good stuff. And and I tell you, I think uh what I what I will say, it, you know, it's interesting having been here for close to 10 years now and and ultimately having served all of my time here on the investing team and working just as an investor to to learn how to get better. Uh one of the things uh we we did, now we we went through this program we have called the Analyst Development Program, and it was about a year and a half long where we did all sorts of things that really helped us not only learn to be good analysts, but good foolish analysts. And a lot of it comes down to just reading those those SEC filings, right? I think the 10K and the 10Qs are always helpful. The 10K, which is once a year, the Qs, which are every quarter, um, always helpful. One, we, one thing we did in our Analyst Development class uh, there was a. We started this thing called the 10K Challenge, which ultimately was, you know, for us, we wanted to figure out 
a way to be able to get into look at a new company and try to determine as quickly as possible whether or not it's a company you wanted to continue looking at. And so, as opposed to, to sinking all of this time into research and then having to deal with that sunk cost uh, problem and, and trying to determine whether it's a company we need to cut loose or not, we figured if we could give it one hour, come through the 10K to get a better idea of the business and whether it's one we really wanted to keep on learning more about, uh, the 10K challenge helped us do that. And so, we, we would just take literally one hour, and we would get a brief overview of the company. And, and like you said, they're the description of the business and understanding how they make money. Uh, and then we would uh, comb through not only that business description and how they make money, but the risk section as well uh, in any you know market data that they had to get a better idea of the competitive landscape for the business um, and, and anything that we might learn there. And then ultimately, trying to answer the question, do we feel like this is a good long-term business? And it's not just from the company perspective. But from the market's perspective in general, I mean, is it a a growing market opportunity that we're pursuing? And so, trying to answer some of those very basic questions uh, really helped us. And and it was a way to go through a lot of companies in a short period of time um, and figure out whether they were companies we wanted to keep on researching, or you know, whether this company, hey, we just felt like it was something we didn't understand and needed to go on the too hard pile, or or there were just clearly uh, things that we didn't like about it. And then you also mentioned management and compensation, and I'll throw another uh, SEC filing in there that that you can look at to learn more about that stuff. It's it's the proxy, uh, you know, the SEC form DEF fourteen A DEF fourteen A. That's that's a proxy statement that companies put out uh, usually once a year, and has a lot of stuff in there regarding compensation and management and the boards and whatnot, and governance. So uh, another another way to learn more about the company uh, as well. So a deal. I hope that helps. Helps. Uh, it's it's certainly a topic we could probably talk about an entire show, uh, but we won't do that. Uh, let's jump into the second question here from Joseph Higgins. Uh, Joseph says, "I uh, switched jobs recently and trying to roll over an old 401k from the time of request until I actually received the forms in the mail. My balance dropped five percent. Would you wait until the market rebounds, or does it not matter since I'll be rebuying at lower prices anyway?" Uh, Matt, I mean, as I said at the top of the show, you're a certified financial planner, so you run across this type of thing, uh, I think, often in your job. Uh, so, so what do you? Think about Joe uh, Joey's question there. I do, and um, well, I'll, I'll say two points about it. But the first one is to pay attention to the date that's on the forms you received. Um, I'll tell you a quick story about a client of mine who um, who called me in in uh, mid February to tell me that he wanted to explore different options because he wasn't happy with his four hundred one k's performance. And I asked him what what he was looking at, and he said, "Well, I just got my year end twenty eighteen statement, and it looks terrible." And we know what happened in the market at the end of 2018. And by the time he was actually reading his statement in mid-February, the market had gone back up by, oh, you know, yeah. 15%. So pay attention to the date on your statement. and It doesn't necessarily reflect your current balance. If you want your current balance, try to log in to your, your 401k's portal. And if you want to see how you're actually doing right now. The second thing I'd let, I would say is that if you're going to reinvest immediately, let's say like you're going to roll it into your current employer's plan, don't worry too much about how much your balance went up or down because you'll be immediately reinvesting. And if your if your current four hundred one k dropped by five percent, the new four hundred one k probably dropped by a similar amount. Yeah, and it's it's a wash. 
Now, if you're going to be doing some kind of delayed reinvestment, like you're rolling it into an IRA and then you're going to wait to see, you know, figure out what stocks you want to buy, what funds you want to buy. If it's a delayed reinvestment, then it's a little bit of a different story. But the majority of 401k rollers, rollovers are, you know, pretty immediate. They, you roll it over and you buy a few mutual funds pretty immediately, or if you roll it into your new employer's plan, it immediately gets reinvested. So it, unless you have some kind of like unusual case where you're going to buy research and buy individual stocks, I wouldn't put too much emphasis into what your plan has done recently. Yeah, and I'm glad you you mentioned that because I was going to offer just a quick uh, personal experience of mine. Um, I've I've had a couple of uh, rollovers where I just rolled the retirement plan over into an IRA that I have, and uh, in, in, um, ultimately what I did is is even even. I you know I was I was just rolling that money into an IRA where I was then going to buy individual stocks. I mean I basically was taking on my own sort of little portfolio management role there, and I was going to steer away from the funds and more towards the individual stocks. I, I didn't consider even for a second the timing of the matter, and, and honestly, the main reason is when you look at the overall length of time that that I intend for this thing to be in action for for me. You know, it really, it really didn't matter when it boils down to a couple of days here or there, whether it's underperforming or overperforming, you know, up or down for for whatever given week or month. I mean, it you could sit there and and fight that battle all all day, every day, um, and ultimately you have to pull the trigger. And and so you know, he he made the point, hey, listen, maybe you're going to be buying back in at some lower prices anyway, and I think that's a good way to look at it. But I think if you're if you're looking at this generally and thinking about how long of a timeline you've got, which hopefully in this case. It's, we're talking about decades. I think that makes it a lot easier to go ahead and just pull the trigger, get that thing transferred over. If you're going to be doing individual stocks, uh, so, so either way, uh, I think generally speaking, you know, you, you have to you have to do it at some point. So so don't uh, nitpick too too terribly much on the day to day machinations of the stock market because we know that pretty much never stops, especially especially in this environment. So Joey, hope that uh, hope that's helpful. Uh, good, just a good question, and certainly, I don't think it's one any, any any one cut and dry answer there. But but hopefully, we've given you a couple of extra uh, things to think about, ways to look at it. Uh, okay, hey Matt, listen, we're going to wrap it up here. But before we do, we want to give our listeners one to watch. So, what is a stock on your radar for this week? You gave us a teaser earlier. I got to believe it's a <laughs> bank, right? Yeah, well, like I mentioned earlier, banks have really out underperformed the market recently. Um, They've just been getting crushed with the trade war and um, interest rates going down and so on and so forth. Um, I'm looking at Bank of America. It's performed even worse than most, down about 12% in the past month. And it's now trading for just over its book value, which is you know, the first time that's happened in a while. I mean, it dipped below it briefly in late 2018. But other than that, it really hasn't dropped to this valuation level in a long time. And Bank of America has just been doing phenomenally lately. I mean, they're, they've gone from... You know, being one of the worst hit banks in the in the financial crisis to being one of the the best run banks in the country. So uh, they keep getting better. They keep getting more efficient. Um, profitability keeps improving. And right now it's trading at a bargain. Like I said, it's trading for right at the value of its assets. So 
I think it's a good one to look at. Well, there you go. Uh, I'm going to go with a company I've mentioned before, DocuSign. Um, earnings are out on Thursday uh, for DocuSign. So, we will be at Fool Fest actually on Thursday all day, and I'll be keeping a, keeping at least one eye uh, peeled on that, that earnings release. But uh, I think everybody remembers that uh, DocuSign offers the e-signature solutions. Um, it serves all sorts of, of businesses from Sole proprietorships to large enterprises and everywhere in between, and and I think not only is it really a a good product. I mean, I think if you've if you've used it before, you understand how seamless it can be. But I think they're doing a good job of taking this business beyond just digital signatures and becoming a little bit more of a full service provider and helping businesses manage the the the, the workflow. Uh, that comes with all of these documents and agreements and whatnot. So, um, you know, you spoke about profitability for Bank of America. I think that's one of the bigger challenges of the DocuSign right now. It is not yet profitable, but it has a good, reliable subscription business, um, and and it does seem to be getting a lot of good um, reviews from big customers. So, uh, hopefully, hopefully, this is uh, going to be another quarter of growth. But we will see on Thursday, uh, Matt. I think that's about all we got for this week, right? Yep, it, it's going to be a fun week with more more trade war drama going through the markets. <laughs> well, we'll keep an eye on it. Like I said, we'll uh, we'll plan for a show here in the next few weeks where we'll start digging a little bit more into maybe some of our favorite ideas that could come from all of this. Uh, well, let's just call it potential carnage. Maybe it's not carnage yet. <laughs> uh, but hey, listen, man, I appreciate it. Look forward to to getting together next week. Definitely. Always fun to be here. Okay. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel and Ari Hughes, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.